infectiousness. And, and yeah, that's, that's our lovely family, our, our two grand, granddaughters. Um, and um, we, but we, we have to know what it is that we're, what that life is. And so we focused last time on, on what is our true identity. If we are to revive, go back to the consciousness of our true identity, if we are to be reborn into what that true identity is, then we have to know what it is. And, and so we focused on that for a bit. We said, okay, what is that? So we talked about it being an awareness of what our life is, and we looked at 2 Corinthians 11.3, and we learned that, like Eve, that we're in danger of being um, deceived and into thinking of ourselves as something other than the image and likeness of God. But that's, that's who we are. We're in the image and likeness of God. And if you were here last week, we wound up by going through a, an exercise where we just started looking at the names of God and saying, if this is God, if God is love, if God is healer, if God is provider, if God is present, what, is, what does that mean? What does it mean for us? What, what does it mean for our identity? Who, we, who are we if that's who God is? So this week, we're going to take a look at um, the, the obvious outcome of that. So if that's who we are, then what is it that we do? Okay? And we talked about the fact that um, um, we're created in the image of likeness of God. We're woven together in Christ, and he's in us. And so we, we really want to think about how that moves, because Christ's image and likeness, Christ's image is his DNA, his likeness is his character, what he does. Okay, so, so we're created in that image. So we have to figure out out of his DNA, out of who he is, out of who we are in him, what then follows, flows out of that? What do we do? And it's important, and a uh, point that I made last week was this, and, and it's the next slide, I think, here. Uh, next one. Yeah, that one. Who, no, even the next one, that's because I just talked about that. There we go. Who we are determines what we do. Let's not get that confused. Let's not get that backwards. Let's not get that mixed up. In our society, we're, we're what's called a cyber society. It's a doing society. And we identify ourselves by what we do. You go and you meet somebody new, and, and other than their name, the first thing you ask is, um, what do you do? Well, boy, that's, that's a real relevant question. But is it who we are? And it's, it's real interesting. When I did a lot of work with, with um, other cultures, um, especially the Hispanic culture, the Hispanic culture is very much a relationship culture. And when they met people, they'd say, hi, how, you know, how are you? What's your name? And then they'd say, oh, oh so are, are you of the family? Oh, you're of the Johnson family that, that lives over in. Okay, now, so your mother used to, they, they start connecting all the dots about relationship because they wanted to figure out who you are. But out of that can flow what you do. It's not the other way around. So what we do does not define who we are. So let's, let's go on and look a, little look a little bit more about what it looks like if we have this revived identity, this revived consciousness of who we are. What does it look like? So the fruit of revival is transformation. 
And in this part, what we're going to focus on, on what actually happens when revival is underway. The title of this series is Pray for Revival and Then Start Reviving. And it, it, it's, it's the idea of truly walking into our identity, because that's what revival really is. We walk into our identity, our identity as the image of God. And, and the actions that we take will begin to reflect God. That's what revival truly is. We'll reflect his abilities, his mannerisms, his character, his identity. We'll find ourselves in raising the, the dead world to life. That's what revival is, raising to life. To a consciousness of its original identity. Uh, I really like uh, Jesus' words in Luke 10, where, where and I've, this is one of my favorite uh, passages, so I probably have quoted it many times here, where, where Jesus says, look, the world is, is white unto harvest. Pray then to the Lord of the harvest that he sends workers into his harvest. And then immediately he says, now go. In other words, you're the workers. You're the ones. And I can almost, I can almost hear him chuckling, saying, <laughs> yep, let's, let's pray. Let's ask God for a miracle. Oh, look at that. You're the miracle. <laughs> there you go. Go out and harvest. You know, and I can almost hear him chuckling about that and saying, let's, let's get at it. Um, because there we are. We're the ones. So you can pray for revival. But understand that revival comes through you. It's not something God's going God's to just flow down on us and, and give us somehow and, and you know, force onto us. It's got to come through us. So we are God's agents for revival. God has chosen from the beginning of the world to work through us. His very first command was one of saying, okay, folks, we're going to co-labor from here on in. You take care of the world, you take care of the people, you take care of the animals, you take care of the plants, and um, make disciples of all nations. And that was his plan from the very beginning. So we understand that praying for revival is the same as starting to revive. So do you want revival in 2015? Well, then start reviving in 2015. You want revival starting now? Well, start reviving right now. So last week we focused on who we are, and now our focus is going to be on what we do. So what does this act of revival look like? So let's go back again to the beginning of who he is and what he does. Remember, what we do flows out of our identity. And we've got a really good picture of that in Luke uh, 4, 18 to 19. I think there's, there's going to be one that just lists a few, s few scriptures now, but it doesn't actually, doesn't actually have them written out. It's just going to list some. Um, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. So what does he do? He preaches the gospel to the poor. That's the part we normally think of as revival, right? Getting the gospel out there, getting the word out there. But Jesus didn't stop there. He said, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. So there's something more here. He's releasing people from their captivity. He's giving people a new vision of who they are. To set free those who are oppressed. That's a very active thing. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. 
Jesus is quoting Isaiah 61 here. Um, I have my Bible around here somewhere. No, here it is. Thanks. <laughs> I, I don't know if you've ever spent so much time in, in Isaiah 61, but it is, it is just a great passage. And it's a passage of restoration. And if, and if you look at it, you will certainly see what, what um, Jesus himself was quoting there. And then in addition, in addition, you're going to see a whole lot more. So he specifically says, he has sent me to bind up the broken heart to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness of prisoners, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But he goes on. He goes on and talks about um, they will be called oaks of righteousness. They, we, us, will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord. We will rebuild the ancient ruins will restore the places long devastated. We will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Do, do, you, do you start to hear there's, there's a lot of rebuilding, restoring, renewing here. This is transformation. We are transforming this dead, broken, run-down world back into the Eden that he had for us in the first place. That's what transformation is about. That's what revival is about. We're looking for a metamorphosis from worldly carnal beings to set apart kingdom beings. But it encompasses every part of life, not just our souls, not just our individual souls, every part of life. We're dedicated to his pleasure and will to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ, which is from Ephesians 1, 5, 10. <coughs> so when Jesus was talking about to save that which was lost in Matthew 18, and, and by the way, he does say it that way. He says, I have come to save that which was lost, not just those who are lost. He, he'd, been, he'd, been pointing, uh, he'd been pointing to the stumbling blocks of the world that cause people to sin. That's what he'd been preaching on. The context here was Zacchaeus and his part in the corrupt tax collection system of that day. The whole, the whole thing was a setting of, of a, a political awareness of what was going on. Through Paul, Jesus sends us to those who are blinded from seeing the good news by the enslaving and corrupt systems of the world. He says to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. And there's, there's a so that in here. Why, why does he want to open their eyes? So that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified and called by faith to Jesus. That's the part we think of as revival. But the part that comes before it is opening the eyes. How do we open the eyes? Jesus makes it clear. We've got to do some things. We've got to release the captives. We've got to set them free from their blindness. We've got to free those who are oppressed. We've got to restore. We've got to rebuild. We've got to renew. Because those world systems are oppressing us. Those world systems are blinding us. Poverty is so rampant in our world. And it blinds us. Those of you who have struggled with finances know how distracting it is. How difficult it is to look at God when you're busy trying to figure out how in the world are you going to have your next meal or pay your mortgage or, or pay something for your kids to go to school. It's a tremendous bondage 
that we're in. And Jesus understood that in order for us to be freed from the, or in order for us to see him and see his light, we needed to be freed from the bondage. So let's go on a little bit. I think it's very biblically safe to say that we are called to bring all that is lost back to life, to revive the world, to transform the world from its dead, subjected state to, to the free and glorious kingdom of God. Why do I think that's true? Because of Jesus' words in John. As he was praying to the Father, he said to the Father, as you have sent me into this world, I have sent them into this world. And we just got through seeing why he was sent into this world. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to do da 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 to do these restoring, reforming, renewing, transforming things. And as you have sent me into this world, Jesus said to the Father, I have sent them into the world. We have that same anointing on us. So how do we go about it? What does it look like? Well, we like to look at transformation from five different but overlapping angles. And the first four of these are taught by a man named Ed Silvoso in his book, Transformation, a great book. I really recommend it. Um, if, if you, you want to borrow it even, you could borrow it from us. Um, you can learn about these in more depth by, by listening to our last webinar. And if you go to the next slide, that, that little, H, that little um, URL down there, if, if you want to just copy that down, fine. Otherwise, you can, you can email us at info at market70.com. It's, it's a, about a 45-minute webinar, but it really goes into some real depth into what we're talking about um, and, and then brings in some different, different sides of it as well. But we're talking about four different levels of transformation. You go to the next slide for that one, too. And you could probably stay there for a while now. Uh, whichever you, if you want to do one at a time, that's just fine. So the first one is spiritual. And this is the one we all think of. This is what, oh, oh yeah, spiritual. Okay, now we're talking, now we're back to, to revival again. That's fine. For a Christian, this is the key transformational value. On a personal level, we're talking about becoming a new creature. We all know that. 2 Corinthians 5.17. The metamorphosis, again, that we talked about before from carnal beings to set apart beings. But when Jesus was talking about coming to save that which was lost, he pointed us to all these other things. They are part of spiritual revival. They are part of spiritual transformation. He understood that spiritual revival is tied to tearing down those destructive strongholds that hold us in bondage. So in this way, we can see that spiritual revival is very much dependent on city and nation transformation, on, on eliminating poverty, on transforming those, those systems of our world that keep us in bondage. It's a clear connection in my mind. I don't know if you can see that, but it's a very clear connection. Remove those blinders, and then Jesus can do his work. Holy Spirit can do his work. That's what revival's about. Try to imagine 
changing the marketplace, the government, the education system, families, etc., without a spiritual awakening, without evolving people from a pure <laughs> needs-based behavior to, to a values-based behavior. It implies an awareness of and a commitment to moral, ethical, and social values. We, we can't possibly see revival on any other method in any other um, area until we see that, that spiritual revival. So I think this is universally recognized. People see this as, as vitally important. And we, if we, look, we look for it. We look for it in our leaders. You know, we talk about it in the news all the time, uh, in our sports heroes, our politicians, our teachers, all of our leaders. We look for that moral, ethical fabric. It's that spiritual fabric. We know it to come through Christ. But whether it comes through Christ or not, we still want to begin moving people that direction. Because until, until they start to move in some sort of a, um, a moral, ethical idea of the world, they're not going to be able to see. They're not going to be able to make good decisions. So the second area after spiritual transformation, and these are not, by the way, in some sort of numerical order on that this just the second one that I'm presenting here is relational so bringing us back into a consciousness of our relationship with God and with each other Christians have been given the the ministry of reconciliation from 2 Corinthians 5:18 that passage follows what we just said that you know 5:17 which is the old is gone the new has come so we've been given that ministry of reconciliation Transformation in this area is not about acceptance, which implies approval. And we can get confused about that. I think our world is very confused about that. That to reconcile means we have to approve of everything everyone else does. It's not about tolerance, which means allowing a deviation from a standard. That's the definition. The word reconciliation is translated from a Greek word that means to return to favor by means of an exchange. To return to favor by means of an exchange. I believe that this speaks to the exchange that Jesus made, his life for ours. I think it's pretty true that he gave himself on the cross specifically for transformation in relationships. They can only occur as we give ourselves up as he gave himself up. Truly loving the other person without respect to their behaviors, to their actions, Jesus gave himself up while we were yet sinners. He didn't wait until we behaved exactly the way he wanted us to behave. That's Romans 5.8, by the way. It's not only about reconciliation of broken relationships and maintenance of healthy ones, but it's about reversing the enmity between individuals and families and people groups through unconditional love, through speaking blessing in all situations. I think Linda and I have told this story here before, but um, we know a man who um, lived down the street with a nightclub, and this nightclub was a very raucous, wild nightclub. And here th there were people living on the street that were trying to bring up their children, and there were drunks in the street and people doing drugs and people doing all kinds of other <coughs> outlandish things out in the street. And he thought, what in the world can I do about this? 
And he began going out of his way to speak to the owner, to speak good things into the owner's life, to speak blessings into the owner's life. He complimented him on whatever he could think of. He looked for opportunities to compliment him. He, he, he looked for anything that was good, demonstrating care for him as a person and offering to do small favors and kindnesses for this man. And at first it would just start out like, you know, like, wow, you must have had a good night last night. You must be a good manager to, to pull in this kind of business to your nightclub. But, but as, he, as, he kept, as he kept at it, he began to find more and more things that he could compliment this man on. And eventually the nightclub owner began seeing this man as a friend. And he wanted to return the kindness. And he ended up financing the building of a supervised play area for the neighborhood children. He began policing his nightclub patrons so that there was less disruption to the neighborhood. So what just happened? What, what happened here? A, a relationship was transformed. And it was transformed from potential enmity and isolation through friendship and cooperation, through, un through an understanding that we must give ourselves first. And that was the beginning of a transformed neighborhood. And I believe that when we learn a year from now, I believe we'll start seeing transformation in that whole city. So spiritual transformation, relational transformation, motivational transformation. That's reviving the hope that was lost because Eden escaped our grasp. The garden slipped away from us. And I said we need to look at um, from different angles. And in the same way that a city or a nation is hampered by lack of spiritual values, so too is it hampered by lack of motivation. What motivates a person? Motivation comes from the hope of some sense of future success or from a strong memory of past success or from a drive to succeed. And that drive to succeed could be coming from a desire to do good, a desire to please others, a desire to right to wrong, whatever. But Christians have an edge here in transforming motivation because we have all the promises of God. We have the promise of eternal life as well as the experience of the kingdom of God, not only in the future, but right now, right here. So think of this passage from, from Romans 5, and I'm, and I'm going to emphasize a couple of words as I go through it. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. That's motivation. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us we have something to offer that the world does not have. We have a life-changing outlook full of peace and hope and exultation. For the millions who have never experienced that outlook, coming into the family of Christ is truly a transformation. But it's not merely individual. 
That hope sweeps across families and people groups and cultures and governments. The movement of city and nation transformation has hundreds of documented films and books and tapes testifying to the power of Christ to motivate deep personal and corporate change. So from the faith of one or two seemingly insignificant individuals, cities and governments are being transformed around the world. Financial transformation. That's restoring our God-given authority over all the riches of the earth. This one's the easiest to talk about, the easiest to recognize, the easiest to measure. In this area, non-Christians actually have an edge because for centuries, Christians have equated financial success with sin and evil. Successful people in the church have suffer, suffered a, a double standard. So while they're praised and looked to for the building um, project or you know, <laughs> heading, up, heading up the finance committee, um, they've never been taken seriously from a spiritual standpoint. There's a great effort today to change that, but we've got a long ways to go. People who work in business and finance clearly see the need for financial transformation. Prosperity fosters success. It's just the way it is. No serious investor, no serious business person, no matter how much he or she desires to be rich themselves, wants to see other people destitute because it, it doesn't work. They understand that success leads to success. All the ships in the harbor rise with the water. The strongholds that keep people in financial poverty, they've got to be actively attacked and torn down. And that's the fruit of true revival, a transformed mind, a restored identity, a consciousness of our standing as inheritors of the kingdom of God and all its resources is an indicator that revival is actually taking place. We've all, probably everyone in this room has struggled with poverty at some point. If not, if not deeply, at least in your mind at some, at some level. Why? We are the inheritors of the entire kingdom. Why are we struggling with poverty? Have we not yet gotten that identity issue down so that our actions can flow out? of our identity. So to those four, we also add cultural transformation. Um, that brings us back to a true definition of who we really are. Culture can be defined as the beliefs, the customs, the arts, etc., uh, which characterize a nation or a people, people group, institution, whatever entity you look at. So cultural culture is the generally accepted but rarely challenged way of life. It encompasses an entire mindset. Culture is difficult to change. When we talk about spiritual strongholds, we're often describing cultures that affect a people or an individual or a nation in a negative way. So just stop for a minute and think about your own cultures. Yes, I said that plural because we are involved, each of us is involved in more than one. So what overarching beliefs characterize your country, the USA, or your church, even this church, because this church has a culture to it? 
What about the industry that you're in or the business that you work in or the school that you go to? Look at TV advertising. It describes our culture very well. The billboards that you look at when you're driving down the highways. The store shelves. What's on the store shelves? Describes our culture. What's important in our culture? How have our laws been changing over the years? What's the difference in our education system over the last 20 years? It describes our culture. So for transformation to stick, that is, you know, to, to actually begin to take place and move forward, we've got to transform our culture. We have a friend from Laos who um, knows that in order to bring financial transformation to his country, he knows that there must be concurrent changes in the culture of his country, especially of his government and of the church there and the Laotian mindset. There's, there's this tremendous Asian mindset that he, has to, that he has to fight against. In Uganda, an attempt to dismantle human trafficking that, that we're involved with, it's, it's got to also involve the, the culture of poverty, the self-image of women, the um, tourism, investment, the whole, the whole culture of, of people and religion and relationships. So to kind of get an idea here, there's these five areas that if we are truly involved in revival, we are actually working in those areas, spiritual and relational and motivational and cultural and financial. And if we aren't working in those areas, then we're not doing God's work. We're not doing what God is doing. We're not doing what God created us to do. We're not letting the, the actions of God himself flow through the identity that he gave us. So how are we going to do that? Well, once again, we come to our practical set. We're a nice small group, so you ought to be able to just split into like two or three little groups, and that should do it. Um, what I'd like you to do, go to the next slide. This is a long one, and I'll leave these up. But this is one for each one of those. And the questions to ask yourselves, and these are just sample questions, but you can choose any one of the five or you can go through all five as a group. But what's your understanding of the need for moral and ethical foundations in people and groups throughout the world? Do you, do you get that? Do you understand why that's important? What do, you, what do you think about people's abilities to make moral decisions? And what does it have to do with how we move forward? In what ways are you respectfully but intentionally challenging beliefs that are not spiritually healthy? And how do you do that? Relational. In what ways, this, this was a big one for Linda and I um, a few years ago. As a matter of fact, it's the reason we're here at Lydia House. In what ways do you intentionally put yourself in relationships that will challenge and stretch you you know, we moved in circles that were very comfortable for us. I'm sure none of you have ever done that. But we do. We find what's comfortable for us, and gosh, it feels good, and so we stay there. Well, of course, what that does is it limits the kinds of relationships you're going to interact with. Do we interact with the poor? Hardly ever. Do we interact with, with the really rich? 
never. Do we interact with people of other cultures, um, of other uh, races? Rarely. You know, it's so, so we have to intentionally put ourselves in those places. Otherwise, you're never going to be able to expand your sphere of influence. You'll always be working with the same people over and over again. And that becomes very inward looking. How about motivational? How are you demonstrating your own motivation for transformation? Are you doing anything about it? You know, for years and years and years, we've been operating in marketplace ministry. And I can't tell you that the numbers of CEOs and presidents and business owners that we come across that say, oh, right on, yes, that is really good. Trans yeah, we gotta, we got to do this. This is, I want to use my business to transform. That, yep, I'm going to do it. But they have no motivation to go on. And so you start hearing things like, as soon as my board of directors releases this, or as soon as our new product hits the market, or you know, when, you know, when we finally get rid of that old debt, there's no motivation to move forward. So they stay where they are. Financially, what about your own finances? As little as you might have, how do you use them? Do you use them for something that's transformational? Or do you use them in other ways? We've been really convicted in our giving over the years. Um, we've given, we, we tithe, um, we're tithers and then we give above the tithe whenever we can. Um, but we, we looked at some of our tithing over the years, we looked at especially some of our giving over the tithe over the years, and saw that we were giving into things that not only weren't transformational, but they may have been things that, that how would you? Yeah, that, that actually held like, like aid organizations. While, while I, I firmly believe that when a big emergency comes up, we should all dig in and try to give. That the, the purpose for that aid organization ends the second the emergency ends. And we need instead to think about what, what kinds of organizi organizations are going in and rebuilding and creating opportunities for people to grow instead of just giving them money. Um, so how do you use your own money? How do you give? How do you invest? How do you spend? What do you spend on? And finally, cultural. How do you, in what ways do you contribute to the negative aspects of our culture? And we all do. I mean, you, if you're honest with yourself, you know you do it. There's things that, that you contribute to. And I don't know what you consider negative, and this isn't a judgment, but for example, the reality shows on TV like um, Voting People Off the Island, whatever that one's called. Yeah, Survivor. What a horrible cultural mindset to have. Un unbelievably horrible cultural mindset to have. And yet, it's one of the most watched shows on television. So we're contributing to that mindset. So if it's a mindset you don't agree with, you better ask yourself, ought I to be watching that show? Ought I to be talking about it around the water cooler at work? You know, you, how, do we, how do we actually contribute? So with that, um, just like last time, I've got 
got these, and we don't act actually have to keep that up, but we got plenty of plenty of these things. I'm going to uh, give you a blessing, and then ask that you just kind of break into a few small groups and just start discussing these things. Whatever's on your heart, whatever the Holy Spirit leads you to do. But Father, we first submit ourselves to you in a new awareness of who we are. We thank you, God, that you created us in your image with your DNA, that it was your desire from the very beginning to make us like you and to have flow out of us the very things that you created in the world and that you continue to sustain in the world. Thank you, Father. So now for all of you, I just bless you now with a new understanding of your awareness, of your identity, a new understanding of who you are and what that empowers you to do as a result of being made in the very image and likeness of God. And I bless you as you move forth into a new understanding of your life's work, your transforming work in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you all. You know the drill now. Get together and chat with each other. Thank you.